You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Before we start this episode, we want to include a content warning that relates to the contents of the book. Those include physical and sexual violence, and if that's not your cup of tea, hit skip and join us next time. Hello, hello. Hi, Neha. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good. There's been an air quality alert since yesterday in New York, so it's been kind of interesting the past few days, but otherwise things have been good. Yeah, just stay indoors and... Read. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Our book selection for this episode is Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Neha, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. The basic storyline of the book is surrounding the Nigerian-Biafran War that happened between 1967 and 1970. Nigeria became free from the British rule in 1960, and that's kind of when the book starts a little bit. The majority of eastern Nigeria consists of Igbo people and conceded to create Biafra in the later stages of the book. And this novel follows the course of this war from different character perspectives. In my eyes, I kind of saw Olana as the main protagonist in this book, but she is the daughter of a chief. She's supposedly beautiful, well-spoken, and falls in love with someone named Odenibo, I think is how you say his name. And he is a professor at a university in Ensuka, I think is how you pronounce it. He is a very loud, opinionated, political man. He has a lot of pride in Biafra. And Olana has a twin sister named Kainine? Kainine. Kainine? I was saying Kainine in my head. I think that's right. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and say Kainine. I think from what I understand, Nigerian words and names are almost always phonetic. So the way you see on paper is what you would pronounce. There's no, like, weird French silent vowels and consonants. (laughs) So Alana's twin sister, Kainane, she is, of course, like all twin stories in books. She's, like, the less beautiful, like, smarter one. Her personality is very sarcastic, and she has a lover named Richard. Richard is an English journalist who's come to Nigeria because of his love for art. And he's Um, a white Englishman, importantly. Yes. He is really shy and awkward. And throughout this book, his main storyline is that he's doing research for a book that he's writing called A Basket of Hands. And then the last character that I have on my list is Ugwu. He, in the beginning of the book, is a 13-year-old 
Igbo boy that becomes Odenigbo's houseboy. He comes from a very small village nearby, and he is mostly uneducated when he becomes the houseboy. He mentions that he's only studied up till standard two, and his story progresses throughout the book as well. And there's like probably 800 other characters in mm-hmm. this book that will come up during <laughs> this episode that we'll discuss later. I think those are the main ones. Do you have anybody to add? I think those are the important ones. There's some family members of Olana and Kainene who are mentioned here and there, but they are mostly mentioned in reference to the two of them. So I kind of see them as accessory characters and not necessarily mm-hmm. um, as important in their own storylines. Yeah. One of the main themes in this book, in addition to the characters of the story, and probably I think more at the forefront than even the character stories, is the independence war and the subsequent tensions amongst the local government and then the different cultural groups. I think a lot of these themes crop up in other similar stories of these quote-unquote commonwealth countries that had independence in the mid-1900s. The independence itself wasn't the end of it. In a lot Mm -hmm. of instances, it's kind of the start of a lot of conflict. It reminded me also of the afterwards India-Pakistan and then East Pakistan? What was it called? West Bengal? And that whole conflict and the cultural and religious separation. Mm -hmm. So that is an important part of the story and impacts the characters more than I think the characters impact each other yes yeah i think the book does a good job of having the war be in the background but also very much in the forefront of Mm -hmm. the storyline it's hard to get involved in like the relationships between the characters and what's going on in their personal lives because there's this huge thing that's happening around them throughout the book i liked how she kind of mixed those two elements together Yeah, if I had to describe it as an image, I would say, you know, when you are taking a photograph of something and there's something in the foreground and something in the background Mm -hmm. and the camera has to focus on one of them. And if you focus on the background and take a picture that way, the object in front is blurry. Yeah, I think that's kind of how the characters are, where they're kind of the focus of the story, but Mm -hmm. the real clarity and detail comes in the context. Yeah. Speaking of themes. Yes. What theme did you pick? I picked a theme and then didn't know if it was the right theme to go with, but then I didn't have a better one, so I went with it. Um, But I will explain as we go why I think, well, I'll just get to it when I get to it. (laughs) So I picked respect. Okay, interesting. And I picked it because I I always kind of look for the theme in the first few chapters of the books that we read to try and follow it. Mm -hmm. And I picked respect because... The first relationship that we encounter is between Ugwu and Odinigbo, and it is a master-servant relationship, but it's not a very typical one. Odinigbo is quite invested in Ugwu as a person and his education. He lives in the house with him, and he treats him a lot more like an equal than probably some of the other characters in their house help. So I was interested in how respect is shaded in these relationships. And Ugwu has fascination with Odinigbo. Mm-hmm. And I think he does respect him, at least in the first half of the book. And I wanted to know how that affected the relationship and how it was tied with these class differences. Yeah. I also was having trouble 
trying to pinpoint a theme that I liked for this book. But in the end, I picked isolation. Hmm. And I kind of do the same thing where I look for a theme in the first, like, 50-ish pages of the book and just mm-hmm. kind of try and stick to that throughout the book. And in the same way um, with Oglu and Odenigbo, the feeling that I got from Oglu's first, like, couple weeks at the master's house was he felt isolated because he could feel his differences between his master and himself. And I think isolation comes up throughout the book in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Oglu, let's talk about him for a little bit. Because me reading this book, I thought that he was going to be the main protagonist. That was not so. And he enters this household with really nothing. He doesn't know how to cook. He doesn't know really how to clean. He doesn't know English that well. And like you mentioned, he has this intense fascination for his master, Odenigbo. And I hated him. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I had complicated feelings about him because I actually thought for most of it that I was a lot more invested in Ugu as a character than I was with the other characters. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought it was just the class difference. I felt like maybe oh, it's more interesting to have a character who's kind of come out of poverty and in this new environment compared to rich people just continuing to be rich. But I don't know if that's completely it. I think of all the characters, Ugu was the most complex, or at least we were given the most about his Mm -hmm. character development. But he also is one of the more problematic characters. (laughs) Yes. I think maybe the reason why we see the most growth in him is because he's 13 when we first are introduced to him versus Olana, Otenigbo, and Kainane and Richard. They're all already adults and already have personalities versus Ugu's learning how to become himself. I really appreciated him in the first half of the book, I think, because he was just so willing to impress and do good to his family you can't not root for a character like that to when he's just like kind-hearted he doesn't want to do wrong but speaking of the problematic things about him he says things i think in the very beginning of the book that just kind of set off red flags to me mm-hmm. and one of those being that he asks about a a drug that puts people to sleep so that he could practice having non-consensual relations with one of his friends yeah yeah in back in his village what did you think about that i feel like i had red flags even before that really (laughs) yeah but that especially was treated so casually Mm -hmm. it wasn't presented as something that was wrong yeah that i felt like following uwu and his world i was just entering a new place that was not going to be relatable relatable or even safe for me which i'm Mm -hmm. not there it's a book but even the mental space that you have to create or occupy when you're reading a book i felt uncomfortable yeah i agree i think from that moment on it became hard for me to see myself in a character like I do that when I'm reading a book I will try and see myself in a character but I think as soon as we saw all this weird stuff with Ugu I stopped seeing myself in him and automatically just disliked him as a character and that the specific 
part that I just mentioned, that only gets worse throughout mm-hmm. the book. Like, that's just the beginning. Like, yeah, I just don't, I don't really understand. Were we meant to root for Ugu? Are we meant to relate to him? Are, like, I don't understand why these weird things about him were put in the book to begin with. I think that part that you talk about where you lost that interest in him as a character, that was where I lost interest in the book because he was so much more interesting to me than the other characters that once I stopped liking him as a character, there wasn't that much to propel me forward into the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now it's time for a confession. I didn't finish the book. (gasps) Gasp, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's the first book we've read for the podcast that I haven't finished. And I really, really tried, but I had a lot of trouble with these characters. Yeah. And I, I don't think my trouble was so much that they were morally gray or made questionable decisions because I think those are the best characters in books. Mm-hmm. I had trouble relating to them. Mm-hmm. I didn't find any of them very likable. And I felt like she spent a lot more time on events and descriptions of this violence that she should have spent on character development. Yeah. Because... In some ways, they felt very flat to me. Like, Olana yeah. is, like, the beautiful one who is with this revolutionary. And then Kainini, of course, has to be the twin who's resentful. Mm-hmm. And even their relationship, what did you think of it? Because it started out that they were just never close, which mm-hmm. I accepted. But then I was curious to see how that would change through the novel and with all these events happening. And I felt like I didn't get much of that. It just, at some point, they became friends. And we weren't given an explanation for why. Yeah, no. Okay, first, let's talk about the fact that you did not finish the book. Okay, fine. <laughs> we can fixate on that for a little bit. I was there too. I got to a point where I was like, and I never not finish a book, but I think I got to a point where I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I agree with you about most of the characters. But then I did finish it in reflection. I think that the fact that, that the characters were not relatable was the point. I think every character had a, a, a horrible dark side that we saw and she wrote about. And I'm not saying that every person has this horrible dark side, but I think she did that on purpose so that we wouldn't be rooting for a single character. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter what class you're part of or how much money you have or... In the war where geographically you're located, every person is equal and every person has the capability to do something good and do something bad. Ugu did both good and bad, and I think so did all the other characters. I am slightly biased towards Kainane. I think I like I liked her the best. She was the least problematic. And mm-hmm. with Alana and Kainane's relationship, I was very confused by it. I didn't really understand the point of their ups and downs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get why two characters would be separated if only to bring them together, but it seemed like that just kept happening. Mm-hmm. The thing that confused me was I didn't understand their motivations behind it. Mm-hmm. If they had been separated and then became close again, and it was because of some realization that one of them had about relationships or family or if the separations were because of something that got in the way, like 
jealousy or money or education or whatever it was, it would have made a little more sense to me, but I just couldn't follow the thread of their ups and downs. I wrote in my notes, Olana and Kainanae's relationship. Why was it rocky? I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. All the characters somehow are intertwined in some way or the other. Olana and Otenigmo are lovers, but then at some point, which I don't understand this either, Odinigbo ch- cheats on Alana mm-hmm. and their relationship suffers, which is fine. Like, I get that happens in storylines all the time. We need that drama. But I just didn't understand the way that it happened. Basically, Odinigbo's mom comes to visit and brings her, like, help to Odinigbo's house when Alana's away. And she drugs Odinigbo and tells the help, her name is Amala, to go to Odinigbo's room and then Amala gets pregnant. For me, almost feel like it would have made more sense for Odinigbo to cheat on Alana with one of his like friends from university. Mm-hmm. Because they were constantly over at his house. One of them, Miss Adebeo, I think her name was, was constantly flirting with Odinigbo. And I feel like that situation would have been way more believable and easier on the storyline. Yeah. Didn't Odinigbo's mom hate Milana? Yeah. Like, was she doing this to drive them apart? No, I think that, at least from what I understood, is that Odinigbo's mom just wanted a grandchild. And but didn't want it to be Alana to be the parent because she thought Alana was a witch because she didn't feed from her mother's breast. And so she was like, I don't want someone like you to be the mother of my grandchild. So she picked Amala, I guess, to be the mother of their grandchild. But then it ends up being a girl and then she decides she doesn't want it, which again was like, this is all horrible. (laughs) I don't have an answer. (laughs) I don't know. It makes as little sense as a lot of the other things. Yeah, I mean, I guess Alana and Otenigmo eventually adopt the girl child that Amala has and and then she raises her, which I guess wouldn't have happened if it was one of the university friends. And then the, whenever a, a woman goes back to the cheating husband, like, you know, it's, it's not going to be good. Like, <laughs> it's always going to be bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think a lot of the things that happened maybe happened to portray these fractured relationships that even though they do end up back together, it's not it's Great. not something ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing this that this book does is it's not written chronologically. Mm-hmm. It's written in four different parts. The first part being I think early 1960s, like way bef- like right after independence and way before the war. And then part two is in the middle of the war. Yes. And I was confused when they started talking about a baby. It's like, what's happening? Yeah. Well, and then finally I understood, like, okay, they it. jumped back. Yeah. They jumped into the future. I got confused when in part three when they jumped back to where part one was. I didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah. In part but three, yeah. they go back to part one. And then part four, again, is like current not current situation but like years after the war i think or like near the end of the war Mm -hmm. and so that aspect in addition to this whole all these weird relationship things that are happening 
makes things even more confusing because you're like, okay, so are Kainane and Alana good right now or are they not good right now? Yeah. And just keeping track of all that was confusing. During the war, Odenigbo is not having a good time. His like mom died because of the war. They've moved to a place where they're not comfortable, obviously. They don't have salt. They don't have food. There's just violence and air raids and just things are not great for anybody. But of course... Odenigmo victimizes himself and he becomes depressed and starts drinking and they kind of insinuate that he cheats again and Alana doesn't really react and she just kind of lives life. It's just sad. Well, why didn't they leave? They did leave. But kind of leave the country. No, they didn't leave the country. I think Alana's parents leave. Yeah. And they cuz they're like like we can't do this. And I think Kainane and Olana feel the need to fight. Not fight physically, but not run away and fight for the cause. Kainane gets very involved in the war. She's like helping refugees, working in hospitals, trying to help people. And Olana starts teaching children in her like area because all the schools are closed. So mm-hmm. in a way, they're just trying to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get the sense from the first part of the book that they were the type of people who would make that choice. Yeah. They, at least in the first part, where um, things are relatively peaceful and they're having all these gatherings and meeting people, they both seemed very blasé. And it's a little bit unclear where their motivations come from, if anywhere. So it was confusing to me that they developed this desire then when the war came. Yeah. And now that I know that you didn't finish the book... Like, in the beginning of this episode, I was talking about how Ugwu's situation gets worse with his weird personality. He eventually gets recruited into the army. Not really recruited, like, forced into the army. And he is involved in a gang rape, which they fully describe in the book. Yeah, it's just... This whole book had these, like, horrible scenes that I just... I. I couldn't get myself to read. Here's my question. The level of detail that she includes in the book when talking about violence and a lot of these horrible crimes, is it gratuitous? It felt a little bit to me, and maybe this is also, like, I have a very low threshold for ugly things, but it felt like a lot of it was included for shock value. My follow-up question to that is, is there value in portraying these kinds of things with complete honesty and detail. Like, do you need to hear how horrible and brutal something is to be able to sympathize? And I make the comparison to one of our previous books, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which also has some really horrible things happen, Mm -hmm. but they are much more lightly alluded to, where it's enough that you know what happens, but then the focus is on the characters and their reaction to it and how they heal or don't heal from it. And that is where I can sympathize. Whereas in this book, a lot of it was more focusing on the details of actions or things the characters witnessed. Yeah, I personally was constantly questioning, is this passage necessary? Yeah. Okay, I get it. But do I need to know the exact details of what happened? No. And Mm -hmm. it's sad because those things probably happened. But do I need to know about them to know that it's horrible? No. I don't think so. 
yeah, she goes a step further to talk about these things in a such a graphic level that I literally could not sleep at night. Yeah, it reminds me of, this maybe isn't a good comparison, but who's that guy who did Django Unchained? Quentin Tarantino. Okay. It reminds me of his movies, which I hate, and people are going to cancel me for that, but I, I know it's meant to in some ways be comical, but I don't find it comical when someone's arm is chopped off and it's spurting out blood. If you're showing something to people that is morally reprehensible, I think you need a good reason to be doing that. Yeah, I agree with you. So that's kind of the vibes I get. Yeah, I totally, I'm not judging you for not finishing this book. Um, (laughs) I was very close to it, but did you know that there was a movie? I didn't know until you told me about it a couple days ago. Yeah, I, same kind of thing with the movie. Did you watch it? I watched it up until it got a little bit violent. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I don't necessarily have a low threshold with ugly things like you do but if i'm seeing them like in a movie it's it's i usually look away mm-hmm. and then it got to a point where there was like five minutes that i was looking away and then i was like i know what happens so i know the rest of the movie is probably going to be like this but it was interesting because they like interrupted the movie with like these small snippets of things that happened during the war mm. kind of gave you a little bit of time like a little perspective of like this these things actually happened but speaking of interruptions i was about to interrupt you <laughs> interrupt to talk you. about an interruption <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe we're going to talk about the same thing probably go for it it's there are these interruptions in the book of passages from a book the book in the book is called what was it called we were all silent when we died something like that and it alludes to something not related to what's happening in the book during that time. It's just like these random passages that are sprinkled throughout the book, and we don't know who wrote them. You assume that it's Richard because he's the writer in the book and he's writing a book, but plot twist, it's Ugulu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> how I felt about it. So Adichie does a similar thing in Americana. Oh, she does which I read several years ago. In that one, it is not as confusing as to what it is. The main character goes from Nigeria to the United States and lives there for several years. And she writes a blog about her experiences as a Nigerian woman, as a black American who hasn't been there in the past. And the blog posts are included in their entirety in the book. And when I read Americana, I that was my one problem with the book. I thought that the blog posts were the author's viewpoint and they talked about a lot of social issues and race and there were important topics, but they didn't enhance the story. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I was reading two books that weren't necessarily talking to each other. And I thought that those would have been better suited to an essay collection by Adichie. So this is something that she does. And I don't know if she does this in her other book, Purple Hibiscus, but I don't know what it added yeah i think i think the first couple times i saw the passage i was like kind of just skipped over it a little bit because i was like what is this i don't understand i just assumed it was richard because like he yeah, was the writer he's writing a book the whole time but then near the end of the book richard admits that he is no longer writing a book he says something along the lines of how can like an englishman write about 
the difficulties of people that I cannot relate to with their struggles, which I appreciate. Hmm. And then Ogu, at some point in the book, everyone thinks that he's dead. He just, His body hasn't been found, and there was, like, this huge, like, explosion, and everyone just assumes he dies. So I was very confused by who what, what these passages meant. But then near the end of the book, once Ugu's body was found and he heals from his injuries, he talks to Richard about all these books that he wants to read. And then you were like, oh, like, he's, he's like, I think the author might be Ugu, and then they mm-hmm. reveal it at the end. So I don't think there was really any point to it except to just allude to this mystery that we were, I think it was just like a clickbaity thing. Like, oh, let's find out who the writer is. And like, oh, plot twist. It's not who you think it is. And I don't think it necessarily added any value to the book. Yeah, if any listeners have ideas about what these snippets were about or what they meant, let us know. Yeah. Because we are confused. (laughs) Yeah. Well... Since I feel like we've been hating on the book a little bit, let's... I do have positives. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you, because you <laughs> said that your that your theme was respect, and I was curious to know where else you saw that theme in the book. I saw a lack of it. I see. That was what stood out to me the most. Like, when you, certain artists make use of negative space, and the negative space stands out more to you than objects or positive space, that's what I felt like how the theme went in this book. So one of the things I think she does well, speaking of positive things, is um, because she does this Americana also, she arranges a lot of different combinations of people from different countries and cultures as a way to explain things. So a lot of the book, at least in the early 60s, so part one and three, there are these gatherings, parties, groups of people and some of them are university professors, like Richard is from England, and then Ugu is always on the periphery. And that way you get to hear about what different people think in one setting. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see a lot of respect amongst the characters. And I wonder if that's what maybe was troublesome about their relationships. I didn't feel like Olana and Odinigmo's relationship was fueled by respect, which to me, is a very important tenet of any strong relationship, whether Mm -hmm. it's romantic or platonic. And I think the place I saw respect the most being present was with Olana and her family. Not, I don't know about Kainini. I think there were a lot of times where I think she, they did have respect for each other, but particularly with her parents and her extended family, she's very fixated. Her aunt she's very close to, I think, and Mm -hmm. then she later dies, and that's something that she goes back to a lot. And I think that was where I struggled, and also maybe something that she was trying to do, because what we were talking about earlier with, like, a lot of the fractured relationships and how the book jumps back and forth between timelines, I think that is one of the things she's trying to put across. Yeah. Just thinking about it, even the respect that Ugu has for the master at the beginning of the book, I think that does go away later. Once yeah. he actually, I think, starts to respect Alana more than Odenigmo in the later stages because I think he realizes the fault that Odenigmo has in his personality. Like he's just a very controlling, proud, selfish person. Mm-hmm. What about you? How did your theme kind of track throughout the novel? I think the Next, the second time I saw Isolation, which made me like really nail down that this was the theme that I wanted to stick with, was when Olana finds out about 
the cheating, she isolates herself in her own apartment, separate from Odenigmo. And I think she can, she does that a lot in the book, where she wants to be alone as a punishment to herself in a way. And then, of course, in any war country, isolation is something that everybody goes through, unfortunately. They're isolated from their families, from each other, from the life that they used to have, from the ingredients that they're used to cooking with and just the normal amenities that they're used to having. Everything about their old life is gone, which is a very isolating feeling. And it's weird though, because I felt like Olana and Odenigmo, their life being in like an upper middle class life um, in the beginning of the book changed a lot more drastically than Ugu's life did. But Ugu felt like he was adjusting to the war life more than Olana and Odenigmo was. He was like constantly complaining about how the rice doesn't taste the same, there's holes in the roof, and the water's never warm. And from his perspective, we see a lot of complaints. He didn't react well to the isolation of war at all. Mm-hmm. He got used to a lot of the comforts yeah. very quickly yeah. being in Odenigmo's house. Yeah. Did you have a passage for us, Shruti? Yes, I picked a passage that was pretty early in the book. Because um, you didn't finish it. <laughs> yes, partly <laughs> because of that. But also this passage is on page 16 and I did make it to like 260 or something. <laughs> okay. So the reason I picked it was because I think she really shines in her descriptions of things, um, like nature and events and things happening. So this is when Ugu first comes to Odenigbo's house. In the following weeks, the weeks when he examined every corner of the bungalow, when he discovered that a beehive was lodged on the cashew tree and that the butterflies converged in the front yard when the sun was brightest, he was just as careful in learning the rhythms of master's life. Every morning, he picked up the Daily Times and Renaissance that the vendor dropped off at the door and folded them on the table next to master's tea and bread. He had the opal washed before master finished breakfast And when Master came back from work and was taking a siesta, he dusted the car over again before Master left for the tennis courts. He moved around silently on the days that Master retired to the study for hours. When Master paced the corridor, talking in a loud voice, he made sure there was hot water ready for tea. He scrubbed the floors daily. He wiped the louvers until they sparkled in the afternoon sun, paid attention to the tiny cracks in the bathtub, polished the saucers that he used to serve cola nut to Master's friends. There were at least two visitors in the living room each day. The radiogram turned low to strange flute-like music, low enough for the talking and laughing and glass clinking to come clearly to Ugu in the kitchen or in the corridor as he ironed Master's clothes. I don't think there's a descriptive, non-graphic passage like that in the whole rest of the book. Yeah, which is maybe why I had to go (laughs) to the first few pages. But I liked that... She, this passage is about the rhythms and the routine and the back and forth in this house that he's learning. And that is mirrored in how she describes what's happening. Like Mm -hmm. her, we've talked before about language that can sound very poetic. And when the structure and the meaning and the pace all kind of match up, it feels very poetic. Yeah, it's very, when you read that passage, I felt very satisfied. Mm -hmm. Like everything came together in like a perfect way but it's also because 
the content of the passage was also relaxing Mm -hmm. in a way. Like, it felt like talking about someone's routine is a very relaxing thing to hear about. But it can be very boring to hear about. Yeah. And she describes it in a way that makes you feel kind of at peace or relaxed or interested. But the whole rest of the book might have been just as descriptive with a nice poetic ring to it, but it was just the content of the rest of the book was just so hard to read that it's hard to appreciate, unfortunately, because she is a really great writer. But the way that she wrote about certain things just made it not a great book for me. Yeah. Which perfectly segues into our Filter the Chai. What would you rate the book? (laughs) Even though I didn't finish it, which when I rate my own books on Goodreads, any book I didn't finish is a one star because I feel like it's unfair. But I still think I would give this a five out of 10. Okay. And all the points it gets is for what we've talked about, that she raises a lot of interesting topics. She's a very good writer. But as I had previously mentioned, I found the characters fairly flat and underdeveloped. And the other thing that I didn't mention before was a lot of the description of the war and the unrest felt like how it is described in a average history textbook where it's a kind of a quick succession of facts without much context and there's a lot of names and locations and dates and people that aren't necessarily important to the story at the core of the book Mm -hmm. so my hot take is that adichie's an excellent writer but in the future i will be reading her essays and not her novels i see (laughs) well this was my first book by her so i don't I don't think I can make a judgment like that without experiencing it myself. I rated this book a 6 on 10, so mm-hmm. almost the same as yours. I just think this is obviously a very well-researched book. I think she does a really great job of sprinkling in like historic events without taking too much away from the characters. The reason why I rated it so low was just it being too graphic and yeah. that's just that's just a me problem, I guess. Like, I think this book is very highly rated on Goodreads and on any book ratings website. I think a majority of the people love this book. And I do think this is a book that I wouldn't dissuade anyone from reading. Really? I would. I would give them that warning mm-hmm. about it being graphic and my issues I had with it. But so many people have loved it that I know part of me not liking it is my own issues with yeah. how graphic it was and the violence. Compared to The Last White Man, where I would tell anyone who picked it up, this is not a good book. (laughs) Yeah. Versus this one, I would just give the disclaimer. And I think there are a lot of people who really enjoy it for other reasons that the violence and the things we talked about wouldn't bother them as much. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just I felt uncomfortable so many times while reading this Mm -hmm. book. I don't know. And that's the reason why I don't think I'd recommend it to anybody because I don't want anybody else to feel that same like discomfort that I did throughout reading the book. Mm-hmm. But so I guess I kind of answered the timelessness question to no, I don't think this book would stand the test of time. What about you? Yeah, I think no as well. I think the the parts that should be carried down and people should learn about are better suited to be taught in a history class or in the context of a different kind of story. I don't think the story and the the context were very connected for me and I didn't, I don't care. Yeah. 
which is not the feeling I should have when reading about a war. I should deeply care about the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that reason, no. Yeah. What? Wah. <laughs> what about your shelf discovery? So I picked the first book that came to mind was a book that I've already said in a shelf discovery. So I'm just going to mention that one briefly, but I do have another one. That book is Stay With Me by Ayobami Adibayo, I think is how you say her name. Um, but the second book I have is called Transcendent Kingdom by Yag Yasi. I don't think war-wise it's similar, but it reminded me of that book because there's a lot of... It's about a Ghanaian woman that lives in the United States, and she has a lot of family issues. And I think that's why it reminded me of this book, because this book is very, very much revolves around family and family ties. Mine... My recommendation for this book is Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. Um, I think it actually tracks very similarly the timeline and the context and background of what's happening. So Abraham Verghese is Ethiopian Indian. So he has Indian heritage, but he was born and brought up for a while in Ethiopia. And the story is about two twin brothers who are born to a Indian nun and a British surgeon in Ethiopia. Um, They have some family issues. Both their parents are not in the picture very quickly after they become young children. They have family issues and they become kind of functionally orphans very quickly and their parents are not involved So the story follows them as they grow up in Ethiopia. In the changing political environment, there's multiple rebellions and a lot of political unrest that happens. And it gives that context, but it also shows how it affects the boys as people. As they grow older, they go their own separate ways, but this family theme kind of continues to follow them and they have to reconcile with it towards the end. But I think it does everything that I wanted Half of a Yellow Sun to do, which was a really character-centered story that showed me how this kind of political unrest and war affected the characters and gave me something to care about and follow up with. The other thing that happens in this book is there is a lot of, there's a medical theme that runs throughout. So the father is a surgeon and then one of the kids becomes like kind of follows in that path Mm -hmm. and so some of the things that it describes are a lot of the problematic things that have happened in medicine in the past which also can be a little hard to read about but it was informative and i think important for the context of the story so i would recommend that one it is cutting for stone by abraham verghese nice all right so next up on our world tour is a country near and dear to our hearts Spoiler alert, it's India. (laughs) (laughs) I should have done a drum roll or something. Yeah. People wouldn't be able to guess. (laughs) As if we didn't talk about it literally every episode. (laughs) But we will be reading two books for India because we like having a book pair in every season. And so we will be reading these books together. They'll get their own episodes, but then we will also be able to compare and contrast some of the stories. So the first one we're reading is Palace of Illusions, and that is by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. 
it is a retelling of the Mahabharat, which is one of the big stories in Hindu mythology, from the perspective of Draupadi, who is the most prominent female character throughout the whole story. So we'll start with that, and then we will move on to read the Great Indian Novel by Shashi Tharoor, which talks about a lot of the players in the Indian independence movement, mm-hmm. but with allusions to the Mahabharata. So he kind of juxtaposes those two as satire or allegory or both. And I'm excited. Yeah. I'm a little bit scared <laughs> because I have a much poorer understanding of the Mahabharata than the Ramayana. Mm-hmm. The Mahabharata is something that I know, like the basic storyline, but I've never ever gotten into like the depths of these characters and like the actual original storytelling. So it's, it's it'll be intimidating. But it'll be fun. We are going to provide context as well and do some research so that uh, we are not left in the dark and so that those of you reading along with us or who want some more context in general can get that. It'll be good. I'm excited. All right. All right. See you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Trithi, and our music is created by Apurva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.